Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. We appreciate you listening every week at this same time to the Bible Crossfire radio program. The announcer said you can call in and ask your Bible question, make a Bible comment. The number to call 877-655-6755. If you go to church for any length of time or read stuff on the Internet about uh, Christianity, You've probably heard of this phrase, the vicarious atonement. We talk about the atonement. What does it mean to say the vicarious atonement? That's pretty commonly used in theological circles, the vicarious atonement. Well, this word vicarious starts off with the word vicar or vicar, which means in Latin, it's Latin for substitute. So when we say the vicarious atonement of Christ, we're talking about the substitutionary death of Christ. Um, let's talk about that. What do, you, what do I mean, the vicarious atonement of Christ? What do we mean, the substitutionary death of Christ? Well, let's start off by looking at Galatians 3, verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Do you see the idea of substitution there or vicarious, the vicarious atonement? Here we are. We're cursed because of our sin, based upon a violation of the law. But Jesus was made a curse for us. We're cursed because we don't keep the law. Jesus redeemed us from that curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So in other words, we're the ones that deserve to be cursed because of our sin. But if we trust and obey, then we receive the benefits of Christ being cursed for us. He substituted for us. We're the ones that are supposed to be cursed because of our sins, but he was cursed for us in our place. That's pretty clear in it. That's the substitutionary death, the vicarious atonement. Another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, if you remember back in English class when you are in high school, the word ironic or irony, this to me is a very ironic statement. The very person who knew no sin, matter of fact, the only one who never sinned, was made to be sin for us. Very ironic. But, Having said that it's ironic, what does that mean that Jesus was made to be sin for us? Well, it doesn't mean he was made guilty of our sins, that our guilt was transferred to him. You can't rewrite history. If Pat's guilty of sin, you can't rewrite history and say Jesus was guilty of sin. No, he was the most completely innocent lamb of God of all time. But what does it mean then when it says Christ was made to be sin for us? Well, I like to illustrate it this way. But I tell you what, before I explain that, I see that we have a call. Let's go ahead and take that. Alicia from St. Louis, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yes, sir. I've been always kind of curious about the um, people's mindset in biblical times um, as it relates to reincarnation and the idea of ghosts. Now, um, and my reference point is with Jesus, who was noted by the disciples when he was talking with Moses and Elijah, um, that point, and also with the disciples, when they saw Jesus walking, or they, they didn't know it was him right away, but they proposed, could it be a ghost? 
And then also when Jesus asked Peter, who did men say that I am, some were saying Elias, others were saying Jeremiah. And so um, the assumption is at that time they were passed on. And even uh, it's been proposed that John the Baptist was um, had the spirit of, of Elijah. So I'm just kind of curious about that. I've always wondered, um, you know, uh, not necessarily thinking in terms of reincarnation, but I am curious about that. Not from a Buddhist standpoint, but but do you think that those those references? What what are your thoughts about those references of scripture as First. it pertains to returning? You know what I'm saying? The Bible never teaches anything like reincarnation. When it says that John the Baptist was Elisha, the Bible makes it clear that he was in the spirit of Elisha. He's not Elisha or Elijah, but he is he is performs very similar functions to Elijah. So when we talk about uh, uh, Moses and uh, and uh, later, and then when people die, they're not they don't cease to exist. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, that's not reincarnation, but they don't reincarnation, but they don't cease to uh, exist. For example, in Luke chapter sixteen, verse nineteen, there was a, says there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day, and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So this is not talking about reincarnation. It's just saying after we die, we don't cease to exist. We go to Hades. There's a good side of Hades and a torturous side of Hades. And we go there while we're waiting on the judgment day. And after the judgment day, We'll either go to heaven or everlasting punishment. We don't cease to exist. There's no such thing as reincarnation. Um, now, on the yeah. Mount of Transfiguration, hey, Alicia, okay. on the Mount of Transfiguration, which I believe you were talking about, uh, yeah. in Matthew chapter, turning to Matthew chapter 17, uh, it says that uh, there appeared unto them, this was Jesus was with Peter, James, and John, Matthew 17, 1, appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with them. So that's not them reincarnated. That's their spirit there because their spirit still exists and they're there talking to Jesus. Does that all make yeah, think, at least a little bit of sense, Alicia? Oh, yes. I think I, I really started an era using reincarnation. I really wanted to, I guess, lean more on you know, I guess I did say reincarnation for a reason because I particularly um, because the men said Jeremiah and Elijah. So, I, so you, yes, you did answer. And uh, I even heard last night that you all made reference to um, the poor man and, and Lazarus or Lazarus and the rich man, rather. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. All right. Thank you for your call, Alicia. We appreciate it. Okay. Oh, surely. Okay, thank you. All right, have a good evening. Appreciate that call from Alicia. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. The number to call if you want to get on the air and ask your Bible question or make a Bible comment is 877-655-6755.
So the illustration about Jesus being made sin for us, suppose you have the mob in in Chicago and, and one of the older mob members commits a crime and the police want to have come around looking for somebody to pay for that crime. The mob boss may tell one of the younger mob members to confess to the crime, even though he didn't do it and pay the penalty for that. Suppose he does, and he spends a year in prison. Well, we might say that he was made dirty for the other, the older mob guy. Not that the young guy was guilty. The older guy was guilty. The young guy, though, paid the penalty for the older guy. He was made dirty, or he took the fall. He took the rap for the other guy. And that's what this is saying in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that Jesus was made to be sin for us. He was made to be dirty for us, or he was took the rap for us, or he took the fall for us in our terminology. Not that he was guilty. No, he was innocent, completely innocent, the most completely innocent lamb of God of all time. But he took the responsibility for our sin. He took the punishment for our sin. And actually, we see that in Isaiah 53, verse 5, which we'll talk about in a minute. Isaiah 53, 5 says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Chastisement, punishment. He was punished for us. He was punished so that we could have peace with God. He was punished for our sins so that we wouldn't have to be punished for our sins. Dusty from Nebraska. Go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yeah, I was just wondering. I hear a lot of people, uh, you know, give give the enemy credit for things like fire, the power of fire uh, in Revelation, the lake of fire and and. I really think that's a, a, an attribute of God, you know, one of his powers. And and what do, what do you think about that? And what do you think about the true nature of the enemy? Well, are you talking about Satan being the enemy? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Revelation 21.8, for example, mentions the lake of fire. It says the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So this is the place. We call it right, in Matthew that's 25. That's at the feet 46. of Christ, right? Like like the lake of fire is at the feet of Christ. He's sitting on the throne. You know, I, I kind of read that as, uh, you know, the God has a lot, of, lot to do with fire. He destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, you know, the, there's the principle of the all-consuming fire of God will burn out in our soul what is not of him for us to be so, in his presence. So this is a place of torment for the wicked to go to. Okay? The wicked go here. We see in, for example, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It says earlier in verse 12 and 13 that we're all going to be judged according to our works. So you're judged according to your works. The wicked go to this lake of fire. It's a place, evidently, that God created. In Matthew 25, 46, it's called everlasting punishment. And people stay there for, and are tortured there forever. The wicked are there forever. They're absent from God. You see what I mean, Dusty? There's God is not yeah, there. I, I, I kind of see what you mean, but, you know, I, I kind of view it a little bit more in a different way. You know, all, all that belongs to God will one day return to him uh, through Christ, amen, and you know, well, but I, I, mean, just, I just think that the, you know, even even as you're recounting it, the the fire is not, you know, a tool of the enemy. And I was just wondering what you thought of that. Yeah. So, so if I know what you mean, the Bible doesn't teach all that belong to God will return to Him. If you mean that every single no. person, no, the people cast into everlasting fire will not return to God. No, they will not. That's their punishment to be 
away from God for eternity. And why does the Bible talk about that so much, about everlasting punishment? Jesus talks about it quite frequently in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, it's trying to talk about where the wicked are going to go so that we'll, that'll motivate us to be faithful to God so that we can avoid that place. It's going to be a terrible place of torment. I have this outline called Everlasting Punishment. I'd be glad to send it to you. When I announce my cell phone number after the, at the end of the program, if you'll just text me and say, I'd like that outline on Everlasting Punishment. It talks about Everlasting Punishment. Who's going to be there? What's it going to be like? How's it? How long is it going to last? I'd like to send you that outline for you, to, and you could consider the verses in that outline about everlasting punishment. Lee from Arkansas, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yeah, uh, I, uh, concerning salvation, I was born. I mean, I was raised Southern Baptist uh, to believe uh, uh, once saved, always saved. Right. Okay. And I've talked. I've talked to other people that showed me verses in the Bible that said that you can lose your salvation. I always thought you couldn't lose your salvation unless you uh, uh, publicly denied Christ. Well, let's suppose that were true. That would mean you could lose your salvation. You said you were taught that you could lose your salvation if you publicly denied Christ. Well, so that means you can lose your salvation because if you publicly deny Christ, then you lose your salvation, right? Yeah. We kind of yeah. see what you're talking about in 2 Timothy 2.12. It says, if we suffer, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So if we deny God, he'll deny us. We'll lose our salvation. Am I right, Lee? That's right. Is that, is that the, so, but that's the only way you can lose your salvation, ain't it? Well, let's keep thinking about this. A passage that's pretty similar to that passage we just read in Second Chronicles, I mean in Second Timothy 2, is Second Chronicles 15.2. At the end of that verse, well, the middle of the verse is, the Lord will be with you if you be with him, implying that if you quit being with him, he won't be with you anymore. And the end of the verse is, if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. So if we forsake God, he's going to forsake us. As long as we live faithful to him, we won't lose our salvation. But if we forsake him, According to Second Chronicles 15, he'll forsake us. Does that make sense? So if yes, you forsake God, Lee, you're going to lose your salvation. Am I right? Right, right. All right, now let's think of another passage. Here's Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. It says, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Lee, did you ever climb any trees when you were growing up? Yes. Did you ever fall out of one? Several of them. <laughs> now, I'm just teasing here. Your wife told me that's what's wrong with you. She fell out of too many trees. <laughs> just teasing. So, you can't, Lee, you can't fall out of a tree unless you're in a tree, can you? No, nope, cannot. And, so and this is people trying to be justified by the Old Testament law. They're fallen from grace. That would mean, if they're fallen from grace, that would mean they were in grace. And then when they fell from grace, they're out of grace. They lost their salvation. Am I right, Lee? Right. Right, right, yeah. yeah. So now this tells us a reason why. It says because you were these people were trying to be justified by the old law. In the context, they were teaching that people had to be circumcised to be saved. We see that from this in Acts 15. You've got to be circumcised to be saved to keep the law of Moses. And when they taught that, he's saying they lost, they fell from grace, they lost their salvation. Does that does okay. that make sense, Lee? Yeah, it does. Let me ask you so, this. Uh, uh, 
I, I was um, saved, baptized back when I was a teenager, and I lived a pretty rough life up until I was about 50 or so. And then my wife started going to church, and I started going with her again. Well, I recommitted my life back to Christ. Uh, but at times, I feel like that uh, I'm not saved. You know Lee, what I mean? I've got your number. How about how about we continue that discussion after the program is over, so not everybody will hear it, just between you and me. Maybe have a study on it. Would you like to do that? Uh, well, yeah, I'm. I'm I'm in my truck right now, and I got I got to go to bed here pretty quick. I'll call you just hours, a, I'll you call know. you in just a little while. We we won't talk long. We'll we'll schedule okay. a time that we can talk. Okay. Okay. Sounds but, good. But but let me continue this discussion with you on once saved always saved if you don't mind. Okay. Okay. I want you to look at another verse. Consider another verse. Revelation three verse five. Jesus speaking okay. here. He says, "He that overcometh." The same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. You know, you remember in the Bible, Lee, what the book of life is? Book of life. That would be yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, book. Yeah, book of life is. If your name's not in it, you're, you're to Hades. That's right. It's the list. It's God's book that contains the list of the names of all the saved people, right? Right. Right. And this says, if you overcome, talking about overcoming temptation, persecution, God will not blot your name out, which you tell me if I'm wrong, Lee, that would imply that if you don't overcome temptation, your name will be blotted out of the book of life. Am I right? Right, right. So so that means your name was in the book of life. Maybe that, you were that, saved. That, you didn't overcome temptation. Life. Now you're blotted out of the book of life. That means you're no longer saved. You lost your salvation. Am I right? Uh, you're right there, yeah, yeah. All right, how about this passage? Are you driving? You can't look at these passages because you're driving, is that right? Well, I'm not driving now, but, uh, and my Bible's I got put up in a, a closet up there. So here's James uh, 5, 19. And... Go ahead, go ahead, oh, Lee. No, you go, you go ahead. Here's James 5, 19 and 20. It says, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, the new King James will say, wonder from the truth. And one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. What that's saying? What is that saying? That's saying here's a brother, a brother in Christ. He wanders from the truth, which means he was in the truth, but he left the truth. Our responsibility is try to convert him back. If we're successful in that, it says we save his soul from death. That would imply, Lee, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that if he refuses to be converted back, his soul's going to die. He's going to be lost. Am I right? You're right. Right. Yeah. And that was a brother in Christ, yet he erred, wandered from the truth, and now he refuses to be converted back. His soul's going to die. Not just his physical body, but his soul. He's going to be lost. That's yeah, another passage yeah. that proves once saved, always saved is false. Okay? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, now, I believe that. I believe that. One now. more passage. One more passage. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take heed, brethren. And we know this is talking about Christians in verse 1 because they're called holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, which could only be a Christian. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Lee, you live in Arkansas, right? Yes, sir. Any signs, billboard signs up around in where you live that say, Beware of sharks? <laughs> no. Uh -uh. No, that's because there's no ocean. There's not going to be any sharks around there, right? Right. 
if you go to the coast near the beach, maybe you would see a sign that says beware of sharks. But people don't, you don't bother to warn people about things if it's impossible to happen. Am I right? Right. So right. here he's warning these brethren against developing the evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. That shows he wouldn't warn them if that wasn't possible. That shows it's possible for a brother, a holy brother, a brother in Christ, to develop an evil heart of unbelief and depart from the living God. And John 3:36 and many other passages teach that unbelievers will be lost. So this is a believer, a, brother, a holy brother, a partaker of the heavenly calling, has to be a Christian. The possibility is there that he develops an evil heart of unbelief and departs from God. If he's an unbeliever now, he's lost. So he obviously was a believer. He was saved. He became an unbeliever, and he lost his salvation. You see that? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, he's not so much an unbeliever as, uh, as he's kind of strayed away from his salvation. Well, this says, lest any of you develop an evil heart of unbelief. So he becomes an unbeliever. He was a believer, but he becomes an unbeliever, and he departs from God. He's going to be lost, isn't he? These passages all prove this idea of once saved, always saved is false. Am I right? Yeah, it's out. yeah, yeah. Lee, thank you for your it call. Does, I'll try to yeah. call you in about in about five or ten minutes. Okay. All right. Thank you. I only ta- I will only talk to you a minute or so, just just long enough so that we can find a time when you can study without uh, you know when it's not going to be too late for you. Okay, Lee. Oh, oh, okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Appreciate your good call, Lee. You betcha. Thank you for the All information. Right. Have a good evening. So we were talking about the uh, vicarious atonement. Let's read Isaiah fifty three. Five and six. We've already read part of it. Talking about Jesus in a prophetic way, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You see that? The chastisement of our peace was upon him. In other words, chastisement is just the old King James way of saying punishment. He was punished so we could have peace with God. He was punished for our sins so that we wouldn't have to be punished for our sins. That's substitution. He took our place when it came time to be punished for our sins. Verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God lays upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. That doesn't mean that Jesus takes our guilt. Like I said, you can't rewrite history. I'm always going to be guilty. I'm the one that committed the sin. I'm the one guilty of my sin. Jesus is never going to be guilty of my sin. He's the most completely innocent lamb of God of all time. What does this mean, though, when it says that God laid the sin of us all upon Jesus? That means that Jesus took the responsibility for our sins. As verse 5 read, he took the punishment for our sins. He substituted for us in that he took the punishment for our sins. Uh, He took the responsibility for our sins, and he died on the cross for our sins. He substituted for us. And this is, why am I bringing this up? Because we need to be so thankful for what Jesus has been willing to be done for us. We read Galatians 3.13. He was made, we deserve to be cursed because of our sin. Jesus was made a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made to be sin for us. Isaiah 53.6, the sins of us all were laid upon him. Without that, we could not be saved. We could not, it wouldn't matter how good we lived. It wouldn't matter how many times we went to church, how many times we read the Bible from cover to cover, how many times we got baptized, how many times we helped a little old lady across the street. Without the death of Christ, we couldn't be saved. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. But then Jesus said, 
in Matthew 26, verse 28, when he was instituting the Lord's Supper, he says, for this is my blood of the New Testament was shed for many for the remission of sins. So without the shedding of blood, we can't be forgiven. And it's the shed blood of Jesus that does it. We can't be saved no matter how, what we do in this life. We can't be saved without the death of Christ. He died for everybody, but only those who trust and obey him will be saved. Not everybody, not the atheists. Only those who trust and obey him take advantage of this wonderful death of Christ, substitutionary death of Christ, vicarious atonement. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. So not only do you have to believe to be saved, you've got to be baptized. Peter told believers in Acts 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So if you want the remission of sins, you've got to repent and be baptized. You've got to be baptized for the remission of sins to get the remission of sins. But baptism will do you no good unless you repent. You've got to make up your mind you're going to change your life.